Welcome to the Savvy Entrepreneur Show. We are broadcasting here on WLCV 101.5 FM from the greater Chicago, Milwaukee area. I'm your host, Doris Nagel, and I'm a crazy entrepreneur myself. I love helping other entrepreneurs. I've counseled lots of startups and small businesses as part of my law and consulting practice over the past 30 years. And so I've seen a lot of mistakes, but I've also started or helped start at least nine different businesses. And not only have I seen mistakes, but I've made plenty of them myself. My passion is to share what I've learned and to find other experts and entrepreneurs to share their advice and and insights. Every week, we have a guest or a segment that helps either inspire entrepreneurs with entrepreneurs telling their story or provide resources and information to hopefully make your journey as an entrepreneur faster and easier and maybe just a little bit more fun. I always welcome comments, questions. If there's a topic you want to hear about, you've got an issue or a challenge, just email me at dnagel at lakes, plural, lakesradio.org. I promised you a guest, and without further ado, I'd like to introduce our guest for this week. Our guest is Bill Nixch. He is the president of WDMA Insurance Group, which is an independent insurance agency and an employee benefits advisor. He advises companies on a wide variety of employee benefit issues, things like life insurance, health insurance, annuities, Medicare supplements, dental vision, long-term care insurance, disability income, retirement planning, and programs for things like business owner key man and executive compensation programs, as well as asset protection. He has clients that he represents in eight states. Bill was raised in Mount Prospect, Illinois. He says he started out as a pre-med major, but that didn't take. But he ended up with a BA from Illinois Benedictine College and then a master's in public administration from SIU Carbondale. He lives in Grays Lake today with his wife, Sally, and his four kids. He's a longtime travel soccer coach, having played soccer for many years himself, he says. And somehow he still manages to find time to play the guitar and even work on putting out a CD. Wow, how cool is that, Bill? Thanks so much for it's being on the show today. Thank so, you, Doris. That's a, it's a pleasure. I really appreciate you being here. Uh, what I also should have mentioned in the intro is that Bill is a fellow producer on this station. He has his own show, which I'm sure we'll have a few minutes to talk about as well today. And look forward to hearing more about that, too. We're actually very blessed having Bill on the show because he's both an entrepreneur with his own business, but he also has some very interesting information and works on insurance-related and employee benefit issues, which are things that a lot of companies really need to think about and pay attention to. So we kind of get two bags for, for the buck today, Bill, so I'm really excited to chat with you. I think probably the most natural place is just to talk a little bit about your firm and how you got into insurance and benefits, and why and how do you decided to start your own company? <laughs> we could probably fill three hours with that, but I'll give you the Cliff Notes version. So I appreciate it, Doris. Thank you very much for the opportunity. I greatly appreciate it. It's my pleasure to be on your show. Uh, you mentioned I was pre-med, and that didn't 
quite work out so well. And largely it was because I didn't know how to study in college. I had to learn how to study when I got to college. And that's not a good place to be when you're trying to get straight A's to try to get into medical school. But I was always good at math. Uh, so we, you know, we, we looked at going into some kind of governmental kind of thing. I got a master's degree in public administration. And um, my first job out of grad school was an association called the Central United States Earthquake Consortium. Um, <laughs> and I'm not, I'm, it sounds earth shattering, pardon the pun. I'm not kidding you. There is a major fault zone called the New Madrid Fault in Missouri that floats around the, the Mississippi River, and it actually hit during 1811, 1812, and it was projected to create a uh, earthquake the size of a 9.1 or 9.2 Richter scale earthquake. But yeah, that's a real fault zone, and our job was to coordinate whatever we could with the, the emergency management systems in seven states. I worked there for a year, few months later, I got a job back in Chicago with the uh, South Suburban Mayors and Managers Association. And amongst the things that I was doing was managing their employee benefits portfolio, which is kind of a backdoor way of getting into this business. And like I said, I loved math and I really got into the mathematics of it. A year later, HMOs started to, if you'll pardon the expression, rear their ugly heads and uh, there was a state and federal mandate that if you had more than 10 employees working for your company, you had to offer an HMO. So we did that, and the result was we went from about roughly about 2,000 employees under the medical plan that we were managing down to less than half of that. The result of that was an insurance contract provision which said basically if, if the uh, membership drops by more than 10%, we have a right to redo the rates. Well, the insurance company didn't jacked up the rates 27%. So my boss came to me and he, she said, go find health insurance policies for the 12 or 13 municipalities. And oh, by the way, your job is tied to the pool. You've got three months. So I was basically working to put myself out of a job. So I liked what my broker did. I thought my broker had a pretty cushy job, and I was naively thinking that way. He takes people to lunch. He gets to crunch numbers, and it looked pretty simple. Little did I know. So after I lost my job, I went to work for Prudential, and I sold life insurance, annuities, mutual funds, auto and home insurance. I spent three months there. I did not mind doing that, but I did not like the culture. And the week in which I led the district in sales, I quit. But I went to go do what I do now, which was I really wanted to do employee benefits. That was my, that was the thing I really wanted to do. So I went to go work for a company called Karun and Black, which is now the Willis Group. And I managed their small group operation for two years. And that's kind of how I got in the insurance business. So I, I didn't do it, you know, it didn't come out of college going, well, I got an economics or accounting or finance background, I'm going to do insurance. It was kind of a back door, but I've been doing it for 30 years. Well, and also you didn't come out of college going, I want to run my own business. I mean, maybe that oh, was no. in your mind, but it's a big change. I mean, I can relate having worked in big corporate America for a number of years the culture for people who are more entrepreneurial, it's often a difficult culture clash, but there are a lot of people who are not 
all that happy in corporate America, but still work there. They don't decide to go out on their own and open their own business. So what made you decide to do that? So what happened was after two years, I was starting to understand the dynamics of being a broker, not the least of which was I was managing a $300,000 book of business and I was being paid $21,000 a year. That was my first aha moment that I'm like, wait a minute, I'm doing all the work and they're getting all the money. <laughs> so my bosses came to me and they said, we like what you're doing, but we're not going to let you manage the small group stuff. You have six months to start to produce larger companies. Well, at that very moment, I had the gajibis scared out of me and I started looking around because the one thing that I found at the early stages of my career, Doris, cold calling was the 800 pound gorilla in the room called the telephone that I couldn't pick up and do very easily. I'm sure people who hear that you have your own radio show probably find that to be almost hard to believe because it takes, <laughs> it takes a lot to be able to get behind a microphone and be live and be on your feet and know that whatever you say goes out there and that's, that's it. And yet, you know, tell you, Doris, I, I know we're going to talk about the radio show. I'm having a blast with the radio show. I feel like I'm in my element. I've got 30 years of this crap in my head to, to teach people how insurance works. So I don't look at it necessarily as something that's difficult. Talk about how you started your company. How did you decide to do that? Did that play out the way you had planned? No, this was kind of a an afterthought moment. So I went to another job. Seven months later, I got fired from that company. The guy told me I needed to get out of the insurance business because I didn't know how to sell. Well, the, the reality was I couldn't sell his product, but I could sell. So I went to a friend of mine who offered me a spot in their firm, but I was 1099. So it was basically sink or swim. And I spent seven years there, did very well, but I got burnt out after seven years. Yeah, I then tough went being a worker for that many years. Especially, yeah, especially when I I start again. I was starting to have these these epiphanies about what I was actually producing and what I was actually getting. So fast forward, I went to go work for a, a very large insurance company. I won't say who they are. I spent three years there, but at that point I was independent. I was I was an independent broker. And I was working for Northwestern Mutual. And my wife told me, it's now or never. So we were $20,000 in debt. Uh, I, I had some pieces of business that I could grab onto fairly quickly, but it wasn't going to you know, replace the money I was making. So it was based out of pure fear and anxiety that I started my own agency. Um, <laughs> I, I swear to God, it wasn't by design by any stretch of the imagination. And maybe you've heard this from other entrepreneurs. Fear drove my wagon because I could not fail. I was not going to fail. And I wasn't going to fail my family or my wife or the kids that I would soon have shortly thereafter. I was going to do what I needed to do to make my way. So when I started, I did fairly well. And then I got a very large armored car account, which started the ball rolling. And uh, I held that account for seven years and then transitions when an HR person leaves or a financial person leaves, they always bring their own people in. And I was odd man out. 
but starting up with a company and then leaving that large life insurance firm, my wife was behind me, she, and that was very important, and she said, now or never, and so it was, you know, I moved on, and I brought with me a small book of business when I was there, and I told them, you can't have this, this is mine, they, they agreed to it, and I was never so happy to leave there, and that ended up being like 2001, I basically went on my own, and I never looked back, and uh, it's been it's been challenging. I have great freedoms. I don't have anybody looking over my shoulder saying, where's your production? How many calls did you make? At the same time, there's no safety net. So I work very hard on making sure that my clients are well taken care of, that they good, uh, excellent counsel and advice, that we do our job in terms of our marketing. And as my staff will tell you, uh, almost to the point of ad nauseum, we don't sell rates in this office. We sell contracts. Because realistically, when you're doing insurance policy, the insurance company like Blue Cross isn't going to say, well, what did, Bill say? what did Bill tell the client? They're going to say, what's the contract say? So I am almost anal about making sure the contract is solid and that if it were me buying it, would I buy it? And if, it, if I wouldn't buy it, why would I sell it? I just want to make sure I understand your business model, though. Do you make your revenue by selling insurance and you get like a commission from, I don't know, you sell a policy, an Aetna policy, and if you sell one, they pay you some percentage, or do you have clients who pay you like a fixed fee for advice on certain things or hourly fee, or how does that work? It's actually a little bit of both, but the vast majority is commissions that are built into the corporate health plan, the disability plan, the life insurance policy, the annuity, whatever. And generally speaking, that commission structure has evolved over time from a flat percentage to a per person per a per person per month commission head. So you're you're getting paid. If you got thirty people and you're getting paid thirty dollars a head, you're making nine hundred dollars a month. I guess out of curiosity, I mean, that means it's great if you land an account at Baxter or Abbott or someplace like that because they have a lot of employees and you make one sale and wow, you're you're golden. But for those people who are catering to the small business market, that's tougher because it may take a lot of effort to sell a contract to a company that only has five employees. It may take almost as much effort to sell to those, and yet you don't get the the same compensation. Yeah, there is a definite risk-reward in this whole large group, small group space. So you smell, and I, this happened to me. We sold a very large contract with an international box maker. I forget, I, I forget when, but it was a while ago, in the early 2000s. And I had this account for seven years until the client sold his company. And he started it out of his garage. When I lost that account, that cost me about... $45,000. And then the bad news was I lost another account within a few months of that. That that account I basically grew up with. I started with two people. They went up to 250 people, which was then a very large account. They went public and then they went bankrupt. <laughs> that account cost me around $40,000 also, maybe more. Those two accounts alone accounted for $15,000 a month. Let's put it that way. 
So it was even more than that. So I lost those two accounts within four to five months of each other. So those larger accounts come with great advantages of income, but if you're banking on them to stick around for 30 years, good luck with that. If you lose a smaller company that generates 500 bucks a month, while you are correct that selling a company that has five people takes about as much, if not more effort than selling a company that has 300 people, it does take a lot more effort in some cases because their margins are much tighter. But if you lost them, it's not the end of the world. So you try to balance things off with trying to get a, a, few, a, a few accounts that are large so that you've got some decent cash flow. And at the same time, you've got your bread and butter of the small companies between one and let's say 40 or 50 people where you're getting a steady flow of income. And uh, if you lost one of them, it's not the end of the world. Well, I think you're alluding to something else too, which is true, not just in your business, but in a lot of businesses, which is the importance of repeat business, of steady customers, customers who come to you and keep back to you again. How do you find new customers just in general? When I started out, Doris, it was it was cold calling, and I'll be the first one to tell you that piece of plastic that sits in front of me right now might as well be a lead balloon of 500 pounds. It is mind-numbing how easy it is to get distracted to go, I'll do that tomorrow, or I'll do that in an hour, I got some other things to do. That's an excuse. If I were to be completely brutally honest, after that first phone call, it's not a cold call anymore. But for me, making that first phone call was like calling a girl I wanted to date for the first time. And I'm like, I'm afraid she's going to say no, and that's going to devastate me. It took a long time for me to overcome that fear. And I'll be honest with you, that fear (laughs) to this day, 30 years in this business, that fear is still there. But after I make the one phone call and I make that one connection, then that fear eviscerates completely. I still might not make the sale. But calling that person up is no longer a cold call. Now it's at least a lukewarm call, and at least you've connected with them. You'll make a con- you'll have a conversation, and if they say yes, that's great. Everybody likes yeses. If they say no, well, at least it's definitive. You don't like a no, but at least you're not chasing your tail. It's the maybes that drive you crazy, especially if you're in competition, because you don't know what your competitive broker is saying. And there's a lot of really good brokers across the country that know their stuff, that are ethical, honest, and trying to do a good job. And then there are the ones that give us all a bad name, which will say anything to drive a wedge between you and your client or you and your prospect and try to get you kicked out. I was going to just ask you what things that you found the most successful in growing your business over the years and what things weren't so successful? That's a great question. I get a lot of my business on referral. And whether I ask for it or whether they come to me and say, Bill, we got somebody we want you to talk about. I was with them at lunch or on the golf course, and I told them all about you, and you need to talk to them, and they want to talk to you. So I get a lot of business that way. I get it the old-fashioned way, which is you know calling prospects on the phone. Not a lot of that in the corporate world And especially now with COVID, it's really challenging to generate new business at the moment. So we also do, though, life insurance, annuities, long-term care, those kind of things. And there are definite lead sources that you can buy onto. 
Some of them are, are cheap. You can buy a life insurance lead for maybe 20 bucks. An annuity lead, though, can cost you 200 to 500 bucks a lead with no guarantee that you're going to get that account or get that, get that prospect. But I can tell you, I subscribe to one of those lead sources and they go into what's called an auction. And I'm telling you, those auction leads disappear within three minutes. If you see that lead too late, you can't get it. And I've seen a couple leads, actually a whole bunch more than you think, of people that have half a million, million to $3 million of IRA money or assets. And those leads get sucked up like a vacuum cleaner in one or two minutes. I get a kick out of that because I'm like, who's buying these? And are they actually getting these things? Or are they just you know, throwing it up against the wall and hoping they stick? My wife doesn't believe that these people exist. I'm like, honey, there's people with millions of dollars out there. They just don't flaunt it. And if you find one of them and you do a good job, they will not only be your client potentially for life, but they will start to be your cheerleader and, and you know, their friends on the golf course or their dinner parties or whatever. Hey, Bill took care of me on this thing. You need to talk to him, at least have a chat with him. So the, the lead sources vary in the way in which I get them. And then I also have a property and casualty agent that I work with. He doesn't do a lot of benefits and I do. So we share clients or prospects with each other. And then I have a consultant that I work with who does get paid a fee for his services, but then he calls me in because I've known him for 30 years and he knows how I work and I've taken care of his clients, so they keep me around. <laughs> so a variety of things really as far as lead generation. And one thing you didn't mention is social media. It, is that something you just don't do much of or if you really haven't found the need to or has it been very successful? You know, I am so technologically challenged, Doris, it is utterly pathetic. I can't even transfer a line from one phone to another phone in my own office. That's how bad it is. But I say that tongue-in-cheek. I'm not that bad. But that being said, I don't have a business Facebook. I don't have a website. I used to, but it just sat there and did nothing because I didn't know what to do with it or how to manage it. I don't have Instagram. I don't have a Twitter account that's a professional thing. However, fast forward to tomorrow, because of the radio station the show that I have called Your Insurance Corner, I am bringing in a friend of mine who is a social media expert, and we're going to start taking a look at building a website, building a Facebook page, a Twitter page, Instagram, so that I can get my radio program out into the world, not just people that I, I'm sharing this with, and then have them listen. And eventually, I know it's not going to be overnight. But eventually, maybe, you know, I start to generate some business that way. I will be perfectly honest with you, though. The whole motivation, Doris, in starting that radio show was not to generate business. You know, I would I'd be lying to you if I, if I didn't have this subtle, you know, that would be nice if that happened. But I did it because most people don't know what they're doing when they buy insurance products. I don't care how smart you are. They don't understand and they don't know what they're buying. And the perfect example is that the commercial that you see on the radio, I won't say who, but you'll recognize who it is. You can save 15% when you buy car insurance from so-and-so company. And my first reaction is 15% based on what? What am I buying for 15% less? And if you don't understand the contract, you might have got, gotten a better rate, but you yeah. might have gotten a really bad policy at the same time. 
I want you to hold those thoughts. In the bottom half of the hour, I definitely want to talk about some of the customer pain points and some of the misconceptions. But just to um, just to finish up talking about your journey, like every small business person, you've alluded to some of them, some of the speed bumps and some of them are flat out a flipping brick wall that you run smack into. What keeps you going through all those times? And where, where do you get your inspiration? I would say a couple things. Uh, I, I hate to say it. Fear keeps me going. The recognition that I have a family that I have to take care of keeps me going. I've got four children and a spouse that depend on me to make sure that I'm bringing home the bacon, so to speak. I have clients in eight or nine states that depend on me. So from a professional aspect of it, I can't just wither away underneath my desk because something happened. I have to get up, dust myself off, and and keep going. I tell my, my kids all the time that it's okay to look in the rearview mirror. Just don't turn your head. Because when you turn your head, you're going to walk right into a brick wall. And mm-hmm. everybody in business has had that happen. They want to focus on what happened behind them. And that's okay, except for the fact that they forget what's coming up in front might be the, the train wreck that you didn't see coming. And so it's always a challenge. It's, it's difficult. You've got sometimes difficult clients that sometimes you'd like to just introduce them to uh, the mafioso guy in New York. <laughs> But you learn how to roll with the punches and be a chameleon. And I'll leave you with this thought. We were talking about a client the other day, which I was not very happy with. And I was honestly thinking about firing them. We were talking about burning bridges. And the person said, don't burn a bridge, burn the paper. And I said, you know, not only is that insightful, there's a song behind that. So I'm actually putting a song together that says, don't burn the bridge, burn the paper. What, um, what does that mean? Well, when you're in business, you don't know who they know, right? And if you, you might want to throw a Molotov cocktail or a nuclear warhead towards that person oh. or that firm, and you want to blow them up, burning the bridge, if you will. But if you do it the wrong way, you don't know who they know. Right. And so if you burn the bridge, you might have not only burned one bridge, you might have burned 20. And you don't know it until you start crossing those bridges. So... The best way to handle that, I have found that I scream and yell in your office, go to the computer, write out all your stuff that you're upset about, and then burn the paper. Ah, that is great. Burn the paper. So get it out, scream and holler, get it out, put it on paper, do whatever you have to, to to get that negative crap out of your head because it does nothing for you. It does nothing for your clients who do want you to be around, who do look at your advice. and that other person or entity is knowingly taking advantage of your good nature and you're letting it happen. So let it go, burn the bridge. It's not always easy. I'm not going to tell you it's easy to do, but figure out a way to look past them because they're not worth it. And here's the other thing that I I say sometimes, and I say this to my kids. I don't know if this is going to sound really good or not, but I'm just going to say it because it's what I believe. If I say something hurtful to you, I purposely tried to hurt your feelings, so I'm responsible for my words and my actions. But if I say something that I, it wasn't necessarily directed at you, but that hurt your feelings, I'm not responsible for your feelings if you felt that your feelings were hurt by something I just said, because I didn't direct it at you. So I have to remind myself that words mean things, and you can be hurtful, so be careful and tactful how you say things. But at the end of the day, 
people will respect you if, if you're more honest and upfront with them and more transparent rather than trying to be a chameleon and, and try to fit in in every square circle that you can possibly fit in when you know you're a square and not a circle. And eventually you're going to be sniffed out. So I think people would rather at least understand who you are and they'll work with you or not, depending on if they are amenable to uh, your different personality. And if they don't, they don't. That's okay. If they do, it's been my experience that the clients that I have, they're still with me today, Doris. The clients that I started with at Karun and Black, I've got a whole bunch of them that are still with me today 30 years later. And in my business, that's really hard to do. And I didn't burn the bridge. I burned the paper. I didn't hurt their feelings. I did my job. And I took care of them. And at the end of the day, if your clients trust you, if you know you got their back, if you know you're doing uh, the job for them and their employees or for their family, they are putty in your hands. You can ask them to do anything and they'll do it for you. But that trust is paper thin. So you have to always be on your game for that client, for everything that you do, and make sure that when you say something, you know it to be true. And I, I, the last thing I'll say about that is I tell my clients all the time, I'm going to give you the answer. You may not like the answer, but it's the answer. And for the, major, the vast majority of my clients, they, they like that approach because at yeah. least they know they're not going to be shoveled a bunch of crap. You know? Well, and when it comes to insurance, I think having somebody who's a straight shooter, it's been my experience at least. You're right. There's a lot fewer of those of you who are the straight shooters than something else. All right. Well, I have to ask you to hold that thought. We need to take a quick break for station identification and a word from a few of our sponsors. Folks, we'll be right back with Bill Mitch, president of the WDMA Insurance Group. When we come back, we're going to talk with Bill more about what he does for his clients and some of the pain points and issues they deal with. Stay tuned. This is Doris Nagel, and you're listening to the Savvy Entrepreneur Show. Our guest this week is Bill Mitch. He's the president of WDMA Insurance Group. He's an entrepreneur himself, but he also works with insurance and employee benefits. Now, before the break, Bill shared a bit of the story of how he started and built his business, but he also has some pretty interesting advice and expertise that lots of small businesses need to revolving around employee benefits. So, Bill, at some point, a lot of small business owners decide they're going to actually hire their first employee or employees. What are some of the things that they should be thinking about as they're making that decision? And what are some of the most common mistakes that small businesses make when they're first starting to hire employees? Uh, since I'm a small business, I can, I can definitely echo those sentiments because you, when you're hiring somebody, the interview process is just the beginning and you're hopeful that that person will pan out. But after a couple of weeks or a couple of months or six months, you're either finding out that you made a mistake or you're finding out that you found a, you know, a diamond in the rough. And I've had both. I've had people that I've hired. I was optimistic and then I was disappointed. And I've hired people that you know I thought were going to be okay and they turned out to be unbelievable. So I think the first thing that an entrepreneur is going to need to figure out when they're hiring their first employee is how far can you stretch your dollar? 
so that you can attract a competent and capable and smart staff that will not only grasp what you're doing quickly, but have your back when you're out selling or doing whatever you do to, to generate revenue. I think the second thing is you might want them to be smarter than you because honestly, if you get people that are smarter than you around you, but they don't want to go out and, you know, shuck their own corn or do whatever, you know, on their own, they're happy in that space of being an employee for somebody. You have potentially a diamond in the rough that grasps things quickly, understands concepts, doesn't have to be told four times how to do something. It gets technology. It's difficult to find. There's no two ways about it. The other thing that I will tell you that has been probably the most frustrating thing for a lot of employers that I talk to, including myself, and this is sad commentary, work ethic. A lot of people, sadly, coming up in this generation, for whatever the reason, feel entitled to a job, and they do their nine to five and then kick out. Those people don't usually last very long in too many jobs. The people that you can find that care about what they do, whether or not they've ever done it before, they care about the work they do. If they care about the quality, they care about the production, care about the final product, and like working for you, those people will walk through a firewall to do your bidding. But finding those people are very, very difficult. So as I said at the beginning, how far are you willing to stretch your dollar? And how, how much of a leap of faith of stretching that dollar will work for you, either before it creates financial problems for you or it's created opportunities that you didn't have before because that person let you go out and do your thing. So the second part is, quite honestly, taxes. Small businesses have a funny way of looking at their bank account and going, well, I got a couple thousand dollars, I gotta do this thing, and I'll just wait on the payroll tax until next month and I'll do it next month. And then next month comes six months and then six months becomes nine months and nine months becomes a year. And all of a sudden you have a tax bomb on your hand because you spent the money that was not yours. It was your employee's FICA money. It was the federal government's tax money. It was the state of Illinois' tax money or whoever. So budgeting is really critical. So if you're hiring somebody for, let's say, a dollar, let's just use a dollar to keep the math simple, you're going to end up spending about a buck 25 between just taxes, time, their salary. And then if you're going to add benefits, that buck 25 might go to a buck 40, depending on what it costs you to put workers comp in and health insurance or dental division of 401k, those kind of things. If you put those things in play, I would tell you in the old days, which isn't that long ago, if you had those things in play, you'd have a, a good worker or a good employee that you can count on. But I've seen good employees leave employers for a dollar an hour more because they got paid more money across the street than what you were paying them. And it didn't matter that you had all these other benefits lined up. So it's really important to pay attention to the kind of employee that you want working for you. In my business, it's going to take you, because I have actually two companies, Doris. I have one that's an insurance agency, and the other, we process flexible spending account claims and health reimbursement arrangements. And I actually started that second company because I was angry at a vendor, and I'll tell you that story in a bit. But you want to make sure that you're hiring quality people, but also understanding what their, what their learning curve is going to be. And in my business, six months minimum 
to understand a fraction of what I know and what I do. Even if you have an insurance license, you don't have 30 years of experience like I do, so you're going to miss some things. You have to be careful not to hire in small companies what amounts to as an order taker who only follows the, the lines around the square box and is unwilling to go outside the box. Those are the kind of people for entrepreneurs that will just make them grayer sooner than they want to be because you want them to expand outside of their comfort zone and they're unwilling to. Interesting. Let's talk about some of your customers and some of the kinds of products that you sell to them. What generally are the biggest pain points for most of your customers? For small clients, let's say under 25 people, price. Premium drives the wagon. I've been in this business for 30 years. We've gone from full medical underwriting of an individual or a company, which means like filling out a life insurance application, one question and a thousand commas, have you ever been sick and tell me about it, to when we got to the Affordable Care Act or otherwise known as Obamacare, where it was guarantee issue, which means no questions asked, here's your rate, here's your benefits, but the price is jacked up two, three, fourfold over the period of the last 10 years because of that. So premiums have become a real sticking point for a lot of small employers and larger ones too, by the way. So it's not just the small employer that's premium sensitive. Everybody's premium sensitive. The ones that are more savvy though are benefit sensitive because they wanna make sure they've got a quality plan to attract better employees. And they use that very, very consciously to try to attract better employees. And those are the employees that generally thrive more than the ones that are so tight to the bottom line they can't see the forest from the trees. And they, they tend to lose more people than they keep. And I've got clients on both sides of that. We have clients that are very benefit-oriented and want to make sure their, their people are well taken care of. And there are other employers that we have that they're doing the bare minimums just to you know say that they have something. But when you start looking under the sheets, and like I said earlier in the show, looking at the contract, you're like, oh, my God, that's not a good benefit. So price is important. But then what I bring to the table is price is important, but contract is important. And then the last thing I bring to the table, I think, which separates me from a lot of other guys around the industry, I've been way ahead of the curve on creative financing for health insurance and dental plans, for example. I'm a big believer in health reimbursement arrangements, which is nothing more than taking a big deductible and self-funding underneath it, because you can get a lot of leverage on your premium. Before the Affordable Care Act, you can get as much as 40% savings from going from a 250 deductible to a $3,000 deductible. That's a lot of money in premium. And then if you self-fund you know, between the 250 and the, and the $3,000 or $4,000 deductible, because of the knowledge that I brought to the table, I'm like, listen, you're, maybe 20% of your people are actually going to use this plan. The rest won't. So you're going to get economies of scale. You can still offer a robust plan and not have to pay for it. And that's worked out very nicely. The sad part is professionally, I'm saying this professionally speaking, when the Affordable Care Act was passed, in my opinion, the HRA world kind of took a hit on the chin because now the pricing... Sorry, what's an HRA? Oh, sorry. sorry. HRA is a health reimbursement arrangement. I'm not sure all it, of our know what that is either, so... That's okay. We live in alphabet soup in this business. So in its purest form, it's kind of like buying auto insurance. 
if you buy auto insurance because you want to protect your car in the event of an accident, but you look at the premium for a no deductible plan, and let's just say it's $1,000, and you're like, I'm not going to pay that. I don't get in car accidents very often. Then you look at the premium for a $1,000 deductible, and it's a half or more, or more of the premium. And you're like, well, I can handle the $1,000 deductible if something happens, and the premium's better, and I'm a pretty safe driver, so I'm going to do that one. The same identical concept exists with health insurance. Less than 10% of the population use 1000 or $2,000 a year, less than 10%. That means if you've got a group of 100 people, you've only got 10 people that are probably using the claim, the, the claim system. What are the other people doing? They might be using it here and there for the physicals and that kind of thing, but by and large, they're not using it. So you take that economy of scale and you scale a program around a what's called a health reimbursement arrangement, and that it does involve the employees to be participating. I don't want to get into the weeds with, with this conversation, but it does involve the employees to participate. The problem that we've run into since the Affordable Care Act is the rates have been squeezed to such a level that when you look at a 250 deductible versus a $5,000 deductible, you no longer have that economy of scale anymore, and it doesn't make sense to take that risk, at least in my opinion. And I, this is 20 years of doing health reimbursement arrangements. So I, the HRAs have lost their sizzle, but for the clients that are still doing them, they love it because their employees get a high-level benefit plan, they're saving on premium, and I can tell you one of my clients that literally has been with me since 1991 started one of these programs in 2004, and they've saved close to $2 million since 2004 in exercising these kinds of plans. It's not anecdotal. I've got all kinds of clients that I can show dollars and cents, major savings for the same plan or better plan than, than they would get in a more traditional setting. Now, that small group, that's between one and 50 people. For the over 50 crowd, it's a different dynamic altogether, and there, the HRA does work. There is spread enough to take the risk. You can take a 250 deductible, look at a $3,000 deductible, self-fund underneath it, and see whether or not the premium savings is worth the risk. Do I have enough spread that I can, I can take a few hits and not have to worry about it? And then there's one other product in the corporate health world that works, again, in my opinion, that it can work for groups of five people. It's better for 10 or more, between 10 and 50. It's called level funding. In its purest form, it looks and smells and tastes like fully insured, just like a Blue Cross or Aetna United Healthcare plan, except with one caveat. At the end of the year, if you've had a good year, you can get money back, like a oh. dividend. And the best story I have is I have a client in Indiana that got $100,000 back one year. Is that where wellness programs come into play? No. Nope. has nothing to do with wellness. It is strictly the, the understanding the use of who's using the plan, how many users are using the plan, and how much savings are we getting from going from a traditional $250, $500 deductible up to a $3,000 deductible. And if we have a decent spread of risk reward, you can really exercise that. Claims are still claims. If you have a good year, you're going to get money back. If you don't have a good year, you're not getting money back. It's not, it's not complicated. And for groups that are under 50, 
that's a great concept for them because if they're having good years, they're going to get money back. They can still offer pretty robust plans, whether they do an HRA or not. But if they have a bad year or they get canceled, they have the default of going back to the Affordable Care Act to an Obamacare plan where they can't be denied. They can't be canceled. They can't be terminated. They have to be offered a plan. So there's a default for those employers who want to take the chance in looking at this thing called level funding and see whether or not it works for them. And if it works, it works well. If it doesn't work, then they have a default of going back to the more traditional funding mechanisms. They pay a little bit more for that in in a lot of occasions, but it does work well. However, let me put a dot, 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 dot. This is when it gets in the contract. Because the contract and these kinds of creative financing mechanisms mean everything as to how things get reimbursed and whether or not you get money back. In a lot of cases, you have to renew for the next year to get the money back. If you don't, the insurance company keeps everything. The other little nuance here is that I've got two clients now that have programs where they can go to any doctor they want to. There's no more in-network, out-of-network. It's go to whoever you want. This is big-time old school. And the, the real critical issue here for the smaller employer is to understand that your employee is going to be protected if a doctor tries to balance bill for dollars they didn't get, which means the doctor charged $1,000, the insurance company paid $500, the insurance company's not on contract, so they're going to try to get the other $500 from you. Because of the way this contract is structured, the insurance company steps in front of the employee and negotiates with the doctor and pays the claim. Interesting. The employee is never never impugned. And the, the only thing the employee has to do there is call the insurance company and say, hey, I'm trying to, they're trying to get money from me. Can you, you know, step in front of me? And they're Johnny on the spot and take care of it. Wow, that's cool. As I suspected, Bill, the hour is just absolutely flown by, and I have a bunch of <laughs> other questions for you, but unfortunately, we're we're out of time this week. Before I let you go, why don't you let people know how they can reach you if they're interested in learning more, either about benefits or insurance, or maybe also tell folks again about the radio show and, and the time that they can listen in. So I'll start with the easy part. My radio show, which I'm having a blast with, and I'm enjoying every millisecond of it, is uh, uh, every Tuesday night at 6 o'clock Central Time, 7 o'clock Eastern. Go to lakesradio.org, click the button that says how to listen, and you can listen for the hour and grasp whatever I'm talking about that night. It's called Your Insurance Corner. Great. And how can they reach you if they would like more information or or want to talk about the radio show or, frankly, just shoot the breeze? Yep. So they can reach me. I'm president of WDMA Financial Group. We're located at 788 North Barron Boulevard in Grays Lake, which is um, a suburb of uh, the northern suburbs of Chicago. We can be reached at 847-265-2372. And my email is bill at wdmafinancial.com. We will be building a website over the next few weeks, so stay tuned for that. I'm kind of excited about it. But for now, it's just the phone number or my website, bill at wdmafinancial.com. Bill, I want to thank you again for being on the show this week. It was great having you. I learned a lot. Again, thanks for being on the show. 
Doris, it's my pleasure. It's uh, great to talk to you and uh, have a wonderful evening. Thank you. All right, folks, that's our show for this week. Thanks so much for listening. And once again, thanks especially to our studio guest today, Bill Mitch, who's the president of WDMA Insurance Group. Now, you can find more helpful information and resources for entrepreneurs on my website at globalocityservices.com. There's a whole library there of free blogs, tools, podcasts, and other resources. And be sure to join me next Saturday when we'll have another great guest. But until then, I'm Doris Nagel, wishing you happy entrepreneurship.